0: Remember, you can stay up to date on the latest news with the Irish Independent WhatsApp channel.
1: And just to flag that today's episode does contain graphic violence, which some people may find upsetting. Today on the Indo-Daily, will we ever learn the full truth Behind the Dublin Monaghan bombings, at rush hour on a Friday evening in the summer of 1974, three car bombs exploded in Dublin city centre. Well, between dead and seriously injured, I would imagine that there was almost uh, 20 or 22 on the ground in windows, trying on to top of one another. When they when they got to the girls, they picked up what was left of our body put it onto the stretcher. They had to wrap it up in three blankets so people wouldn't see what was happening. Around an hour and a half later, a fourth car bomb went off, this time in County Monaghan. And then I went
0: further up uh, where the, uh, obviously the bomb had gone off, and there was somebody that was black and flames coming off him and there was a policeman took his coat off and there was someone else trying to put the flames out.
1: The Dublin Monaghan bombings on May 17th 49 years ago killed 34 people including an unborn baby and injured almost 300. It was the deadliest conflict of the Troubles and no one has ever been convicted in connection with it. I'm Siobhan McGuire, and on today's episode I'm joined by Irish independence political columnist John Downing to hear about these atrocities and why almost half a century on we're still looking for answers.
0: To the evil men who have perpetrated these deeds, we express the revulsion and condemnation which every decent person in this island feels at their unforgivable acts.
1: John, it's 49 years since the deadliest terrorist attack in the Republic's history. Can you perhaps set the scene for us to better understand what Ireland in 1974 was like?
0: It was a very, very tense period. What was happening in the north was there was an attempt to to have a power-sharing government, which was a first, The SDLP and the Ulster Unionist Party were sharing power. There was a mass strike against them. Grassroots unionists, uh, mad uh, paramilitary loyalists and the trade union movement, which was to a large degree infiltrated by loyalists and unionists, were busy about their work bringing down the power-sharing government, and it didn't. It only lasted weeks after. thereafter. Uh, that was going on in the north. There, were, there was a lot of uh, stuff, a fear, a growing fear, that violence, which was every day on the streets of Belfast, Derry, and some of the other towns in Northern Ireland, was gradually seeping southwards. The other thing that was going on was that the IRA were trying their damnedest to bomb on the other island, to bomb in Britain. And in a sense, there is a comparison with what happened in May 1974 in Dublin with the loyalists trying to take their cause south in the most horrible way and what the IRA were also doing and an awful lot of that in 1974 also in Britain.
1: So you have Dublin's city centre, John, on the 17th of May. You probably have quite a nice, bright evening. It's rush hour in Friday. People are going about their business and then tragedy strikes.
0: Three bombs in the centre of the city, absolutely no warning, three car bombs. Uh, The numbers on the street in the areas that were bombed were actually inflated by the fact that there was a bus strike at the time. A lot of people were going down looking for trains uh, at uh, uh, Connolly Station. Uh, Most of the people at the time would have known it as Amiens Street Station. It had only been renamed Connolly in 1966. But at all events, people milling about and then just horror. The first bomb went off in Parnell Square up north of O'Connell Street. That had... The effect, whether it was deliberately, cold bloodedly planned or not, of sending people uh, down towards the Liffey and into the side streets, and the next bombs went off in the side streets off O'Connell Street. All the explosions were caused by car bombs so familiar to people north of the border. There was no way they could have been placed without the intention to kill innocent bystanders.
1: Because as we sit here today, just off on Talbot Street, John. No distance. No distance at all. And we are right beside a huge memorial to all those people who lost their lives on that day. And at the moment, they're shrouded in flowers because of the anniversary last month. But my goodness, you put it into context. This is a street you or I or anyone we know could be on. This is
0: a street I have walked on and off for decades at various times, all hours of the day or night. You do not expect, you know, a World War II boom sound going off and debris and glass and all sorts flying in every direction. And tragically, and and not trying to be in any way crude, people's limbs, people's arms, legs, heads flying through the air.
1: We have eyewitness accounts from that day. Um, One of them from veteran journalist Vincent Brown, who would have been working in what was the Irish Independent offices on Abbey Street at the time. And I think one of the the descriptions that, that he gave was that he went to help somebody to pick them up and the body pretty much just fell apart. I mean, that was the extent of the explosion. This was a bloody, bloody scene. And when you think about the the victims john most of them were young women
0: absolutely uh, and th- there were stories people came the national newspapers more or less then as now the irish independent offices were the other side of o'connell street in abbey street but all, all everything a walk so people were very quickly on the scene and trying to make sense of a situation, as I said, body parts in the gutter. One a photographer whom I, who, uh, whom I knew, uh, told me a story of of seeing blood literally running down the gutter, as though it were, were uh, he was in the middle of an abattoir. Just absolute carnage, you know. There was people, bodies just scattered all over the place. So I went down to Guyneys and I just sort of had a look around and. Uh, I saw two or three people lying in the window, you know, and they were badly caught. And there was firemen there trying to get them out. But it was a scene of absolute desolation, you know.
1: So the the ages of the dead, John, ranged from five months to 80 years. Do we know much more about uh, the people who lost their lives on the day? There are a
0: lot of very poignant stories um, there there is, uh, f- for example, there's a story of, of a father and his two sons. Um, it was to be the child's Holy Communion. He brought him for a, a haircut and to get a haircut himself so he'd look good the next day. As we know, May May is, is a time for first Holy Communion in, in this country and he wanted to look his best on the day, and both of them died. And um, the poor woman, his wife, the fallout from this of people, another story of a young woman who had spent the previous evening with her father writing wedding uh, invitations. He knew she was in town for for whatever reason, and uh, he spent uh, half the day, trying to get through to hospitals and guard the stations, couldn't because all the lines were jammed. Eventually, very late that night, uh, the guardie came and they took uh, both he and his wife to, to hospital to identify his daughter. There are stories he identified her via her jewellery, uh, her, her specifically, specifically via her engagement ring there were so many stories like that there were people from all over the country an awful lot of people from dublin's inner city because people still lived in predominantly in dublin's inner city but there were people from uh from different other other parts of of the country uh from Drogheda, from Kerry and uh, from offaly and and other places and there are also stories you no know, later than this morning i i was talking to uh a man of a certain age because I told him I was reading about this and he started telling me his story about being in Dublin that day. He was actually in Thomas Street shopping, but by the time he got home, uh, his parents were beside themselves. I mean, this is so terror, horror uh, uh, and, and uh, 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 profound levels of, of upset uh, all throughout the country.
1: John, we have these bombs going off in Dublin. But that's not the end of the horror because an hour and a half after the three bombs go off, there's an incident in Monaghan. What happens?
0: The three in Dublin exploded almost simultaneously, so there was no possibility of them not being planned to go off at peak rush hour. The bomb in Monaghan went off an hour later and just as deadly. The emergency services put into action a plan they'd devised at the time of the two car bombs which went off in Dublin in 1972. A bomb outside, outside a pub in, in the centre of Monaghan. Um, some people, uh, there was speculation at least at the time that the second bomb was a cover to allow those responsible for the bomb. And it turned out that they were members of the Ulster Volunteer Force. This this is uh, incontrovertible. that They at least were engaged in this to allow them get back over the border to return home in safety. But that uh, eventually killed six. Ultimately, you see, one of the tragedies about the numbers here is when you start to read about it, people, people were dying two months later, somebody died. You know, I mean, people were battling for life for a long time. That of itself was another uh, another travesty. It was actually curiously a Protestant-owned pub in in Monaghan, um, and one of the, of the people killed in it was actually a Presbyterian, uh, a civilian Protestant man, uh, George Williamson, and uh, he he lived alone. His family came home from Canada to bury him. He was an elderly man. So, I mean, but the, this, this horror story, the, the compound uh, double tragedy fairly rocked the authorities and fairly tested the mettle of Angarda Siokhana and the army. And of course, the upshot of some of this was that some of the peacekeepers uh, based in the Middle East, mainly in Lebanon, were seconded back to increase uh, security on the border. So that of itself further increased tensions and difficulties.
1: You talk about soldiers coming back, for example, that was going to be my next question. What was the reaction here to uh, what happened both in Dublin and in Monaghan? Liam Cosgrave was the then Shock.
0: What has happened today will help to underline the criminal folly and utter futility of violent action as a means for furthering political aims. It also helps to bring home to us here, in this part of our island, what the people in Northern Ireland have been suffering for five long years. Today's evil deeds will only serve to strengthen the resolve of those north and south who have been working for peace. The Loyalists were trying to take their case south. And show what, what was happening. Others uh, in in the loyalist movement, David Irvine, uh, a member of the UVF, who did a, did a long time in the, the late Dave, David Irvine, later rightly revered, revered for his work uh, on in the peace process, but he described it at the time as uh, loyalists merely quote-unquote, returning the serve, losing a, uh, using a tennis analogy, putting the ball back over the net. Um, another who was speaking for the rival group, the UDA, who we, we don't believe were involved because subsequently the UVF admitted their involvement on, a, on two separate occasions. But uh, a member of the UDA said, I'm very happy uh, about the bombings in Dublin. There is a war in the Free State and now we're laughing at them. He was a man called Sammy Smith, who was a a, a very well-known spokesman for, for the UDA at the time, the Ulster Defence Association, as I say, the rival to be distinguished from the UVF.
1: So in 2008, John, we had an RTE documentary series called Collusion, and one episode featured claims from a UVF gang member responsible for the bombs that... The intention was there to start a civil war Um, and then there's also talk or whispers that there was some sort of collusion between loyalist paramilitaries and pockets of the British security forces and this was something even Margaret Thatcher had been warned about. Was there any truth in any of that?
0: There's certainly uh, truth enough to sustain further investigation. There's certainly uh, a a great deal of prima facie evidence. There is a man called David Burke, who has written extensively. He's uh, um, a barrister and and, uh, researcher and historian. He has written extensively on this issue and dirty black operations by the sort of more more clandestine members of the, of the British security services there has been more uh firm allegations made particularly by there were two whistleblowers who emerged uh quite some years ago Colin Wallace and Fred Holyrood of of the uh, British intelligence uh they, they believed that that uh the the funny fellows uh, in, in Britain and based in Stormont had a role in this. Now, Wallace, Colin Wallace had been a press officer based in army headquarters and Fred Holyrood um, ser- uh, had previously served in military intelligence. Now, what it, unsurprisingly, in my view, such allegations were utterly rejected by, by the British government. But similarly, they were rejected by the Irish government, possibly because they're so difficult to uh, sustain and to stand up and possibly also because they believed there was a bigger picture and a longer game to be played in relationships between London and Dublin. Therefore, accusing them of black ops and uh, running a dirty war uh, was really not a, a beneficial route to go.
1: John, we mentioned at the start of this, it's the 49th anniversary of that terribly tragic event uh, in Dublin and Monaghan. And indeed, we have the memorial to all those people who lost their lives beside us here, where we work, currently swamped in beautiful flowers, you know, to commemorate the anniversary. At a commemoration event today, all 34 of the victims' names were read aloud and a minute's silence was held in their memory. This is the 49th anniversary of the bombings, but for the families of the victims, the impact of that day continues to be felt. I lost my uncle, John O'Brien. He was murdered alongside his wife, Anna O'Brien,
0: and their two children. You know, events like this, it just tears families apart, you know, you never recover and it goes down through the generations.
1: John, it's not been an easy road for families of the victims. You had an inquest reopened in 2003 with expectations that questions would finally be answered. Now, look, 49 years on, you have more worries, this time around legislation that would give an amnesty to those suspected of killings during the Troubles. This is the legacy bill, of course. Are we any closer to learning the full truth about what happened on that day?
0: As of now, I would say no. And it's hard to see ultimately how we will until we, we see particularly the British intelligence files, but indeed, maybe some of the Irish files, which are, where are they? Are they open? Are they, you know, that as well. Um, there there are, the, for the families and of course, even, you know, those who were, very young at that time uh, and maybe even their children, they're beginning to get on in years now. We're talking about the guts of a half century here. Um, Notably, the thing that always has screamed out to me and many other people was that loyalists never succeeded in doing much outside of their, their own jurisdiction. The type of things they did, now both sides and all sides did pretty crude, stupid and awful things, but the loyalists were not able to the same extent as the Republican side to get through the barrage of security. They were not as, as proficient or as competent in armaments and particularly in explosives. And the reality is, while they had a couple of sporadic attacks before May 1974 uh, and a couple of much smaller things Subsequently, they never before or since put together such uh, an operation, which in their terms they viewed as success. Therefore, that of itself screams questions about the potential for collusion. When you add that to uh, it's allegations from some very well-placed people, notably the two whistleblowers whom I mentioned a short while ago and others, You have to say there is a huge untold story here.
1: And my thanks to Irish independent political columnist John Downing for joining me today. I'm Siobhan McGuire and today's episode of the Indo-Daily was produced by myself, researched by Paul Hyland, with sound by John Smith archive clips from RTE, the BBC, ITV, ITN, BBC Northern Ireland, Associated Press and Independent.ie. If you enjoy the Indo Daily, don't forget to like, follow and leave us a review.